You're listening to Three Broke Mice, a podcast collaboration of KBIA and Missouri Business Alert. I'm Bita. This is Sue. And I'm Kara. All right. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of Three Broke Mice. How are you guys doing today? New episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about a topic today that's really close to all of our hearts. All of our hearts. And everyone, and it's close to everyone's hearts and Mm. stomachs. Yes. And and Instagram (laughs) profiles. Um, (laughs) So in today's show, we're going to be talking about food. One of our favorite topics, not just in this group, but it seems like with our generation in general, discussing some of the ins and outs of being a millennial shopper who tends to be a little more food and health conscious, but also as millennial shoppers who may have health concerns, food allergies, issues where exactly their food's coming on. And of course, as usual, we'll go off on a little bit of a tangent about how social media uh, ties into all of this anyway. I want to have a quick polling since we're, you know, deep in the election. Well, not mm-hmm. deep, deep, but like deep in the primary season. And it's all about polling nowadays. So it's a poll amount of mice. Um, how much money do you guys spend on groceries every month? Mm. I'd say about 150 one. to 100 to $200. That's quite a bit. And that's just because recently I found out that I'm allergic to wheat, dairy, peanuts. Uh, Basically, I'm a vegan, gluten-free, peanut-free, egg-free now, but I can eat meat. So, What about you, Kara? I'd say probably around the same ballpark, um, 160 to 200 bucks a month. I actually just went grocery shopping last night and spent on the food part of it because I had to buy some other things, uh, probably 45 bucks, so... Um, 45 maybe lasting for a week is that yes yes and uh, that also comes with having some different health conscious issues for myself I haven't eaten gluten for the past five weeks um and I also don't eat a lot of processed food in general and I, I cook a lot from scratch and part of that is just for health purposes and part of that is just for enjoyment so yeah that's that's how I spend that way how that's, about that's a really good point to raise because mm. I think that's very common or n- more normally seen among people our age is they try to cook, you know, they try to not eat out as often and, you know, they try to be a little more healthy and be a little more conscious of what they put into their mouths. Mm-hmm. Do you find that to be the case, especially mm-hmm. comparing to older people? I yeah, guess? 100%. No. Definitely. Aside from just that, I was raised in a household where both my parents like to cook from scratch a lot. And um, having having dinner together was always a big thing that we tried to do as much as possible. I also picked up a health consciousness from them. And just I just know I feel better when I'm cooking things that are fresher and have less preservatives and additives and so on. And I find in some regards it's actually cheaper, even though I'm saying giving that number for yeah. how much I spend per month. But uh, yeah, so uh, and I, I think culturally now it's it's in vogue, um, definitely yeah. with our generation to be more health conscious in that regard and to be cooking up all these pretty meals to take photos of. And of course, my friends who follow me on Snapchat are probably really annoyed We're with me at this point We're sick and tired of it, Kara. I'm just all the stuff I'm posting up there. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I would say I would say it depends culturally too, how you're raised and how your family was raised. Because my family they they spend a lot of time in the kitchen. Our like Persian cuisine is really it's hard to go have a good Persian meal at a restaurant. That's mm. all of us always criticize how they make food every every time we go to a new Persian restaurant. But in general, um, I would say like my parents' generation, they're more comfortable with going out when they're too lazy to make a meal. 
Um, and that's just because they don't, I mean, it's it's easier for them. They have a hectic lifestyle, whatever. But I feel like for us, with the Pinterest generation, with the pictures generation, with the social media generation, we want to make something nice and we want to share that. And that's a part of the, the appeal, too, of, of social media, I think. I think there's a significant difference between posting a picture of a homemade meal and mm-hmm. be able to claim that this is something I just made right. compared to going to a restaurant. Maybe it's fancy. Maybe it's really nice looking, but it's ultimately going to be something yes. of others creation rather than your own, which right. that plays a lot into us wanting to cook our own food and be conscious and look pretty with right. whatever comes out of your own oven. You know, and maybe it's a marketing strategy for Basically, yeah. because yeah. because our fam- my family jokes and they're like, when you can make this in this dish in the Iranian culture, you're ready for marriage. And maybe that's a subconscious <laughs> marketing strategy for yeah. us to be like, you know yeah. what? I can actually provide. I can actually make a good meal despite my crazy college like schedule or my work schedule or my family or whatever whatever has whatever you have. And that is on. universal in many many cultures as yeah. well. I would personally claim in Chinese culture absolutely the same. Like if. You you're good at cooking, you're ready to have a family. Yeah. You've come <laughs> right. of age. Yeah. That's yeah. nuts. But and with Instagram and the postability of home-cooked food versus food we have in restaurants, we're actually going to get to that later in the show also, looking at how it differs geographically and in different areas with different economic, socioeconomic makeup. So let's... Let's talk about allergies, yeah. because this is something that I really want to hear you two discuss, since both of you guys have recently found out. That our lives of- are ruined. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our um, lives have ended. <laughs> and it's it's been um, close to, you know, slightly over a month, close to two months that you guys have been coping with your allergic symptoms and basically how, what kind of things that you can do in order to make yourself feel a little better. I mean, you're getting there, not exactly there yet, but, um, if you guys would want to share with us about what it's like, you know, doing that and what kind of adjustments you guys had to make, please feel free because I want, I want to know. Uh, well, I guess I can start, but um, I I think the biggest thing with allergies is when I was growing up and I saw that other kids had allergies, I was like, I don't have those symptoms, therefore I don't need to worry about allergies. But the older I got, um, I would break out into hives or I'd have brain fog or after I ate, I mean, sometimes it's normal to go into a food coma, but like not to the extent where like it really makes me not want to go out. I get super moody. I want to sleep or something. And I didn't know those were symptoms of having an allergy issue. So I went and got my blood drawn last year, actually, and they told me I wasn't supposed to have dairy, eggs, peanuts, wheat. And then, like, I had a number of environmental allergies that also played into my life. And so ever since my doctor's appointment, I've been really good about cutting everything out. It's, like, one of the most life-changing experiences because you have a different relationship with food. I know for me, I would... I would just grab the easiest thing on my way out or I would just, you know, go to a restaurant and eat. But now I have to prepare my food. I have to make my food. I have to love my food. I have to know what I'm putting in my in my body. And I feel so much better. I wake up feeling really refreshed. Once you actually get into the groove of, you know, eating what you're supposed to, 
that honestly feels better than any meal that you can get that's satisfying because you're just your body feels good it's an immediate instant gratification with your body like you feel so in tune with your body but I think everyone should get an allergy test done because I feel like everyone's allergic to something as we started off earlier talking about like how much we're spending on groceries and just Mm -hmm. like generally like the cost of these things like how much do you feel like that has fluctuated for you what do you mean? Just like the how price much of more you're paying? Yeah. yeah. Um. Honestly, actually, I feel like I'm paying less because before I would all my money would go to eating food out, like going out and eating, which it would run between ten to twenty dollars if I'm going to a regular place because I'd get like appetizers or a drink or, you know, whatever. Uh, like the the meal itself. Um. It was always kind of a pricey, pricey part of my life, but now because I have to make food. It's actually cheaper. It evens out at some point. So but not eating out became a conscious decision yes, due to the allergy. I mean, especially here in Colombia. I don't know about you guys, but I think there's like one or two places where I can comfortably go. I can definitely relate and feel like I have spent actually less money. For the past five weeks, I've decided to abstain 99% from eating anything with gluten in it. After a while of the, say, first month of this semester, so from late January to late February, through process of elimination, eliminating different things from my diet and eliminating different um, potential reasonings behind me feeling in a fog all the time, feeling really exhausted and just feeling really sick and dragging and not really able to function, that it was most likely that I had something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And once I stopped eating gluten, I started to feel a lot better. Although I'm someone who already cooks a lot from scratch, I don't even, I, it didn't even seem like I was consuming that much bread, that much of products that included flour, wheat, barley, and rye, gluten-saturated grains. But once you cut it out, it's kind of amazing. So I do now eat a lot of quinoa and rices and things of that sort. But when I do look for bread and look for pasta, it is that's kind of where the struggle becomes real. Um, once in a while, you start to crave those things and you look at how expensive different brands can be. Mind you, there are brands of gluten-free pasta that are comparable in price to pastas that you would find that full wheat, full gluten, uh, semolina flour, like the whole nine yards. But a lot of the gluten-free pastas in the market aren't very good and they're very limp and et cetera, et cetera. And if you want something that actually is good and comparable to what you're used to in your gluten-filled old lifestyle, it can cost you upwards of four or five dollars a box for just plain spaghetti. And I'll never forget the first time that I went really grocery shopping after deciding to take on this gluten-free diet. And I'm walking in the gluten-free section of a grocery store that we have here called Hy-Vee, kind of just looking around dismayed at not only the limitations to what I could eat, although I was in this section of all of these substituted products of quote-unquote normal products, but also just the cost. I was really blown away. And as someone who um, who is a younger person in school and working a lot, and I'm just in the grocery store trying to pick up my general staples, it makes me wonder how are other people of my age group who have this sensitivity or full-blown celiac disease or gluten sensitivity or or a plethora of different food allergies, how are they coping with, one, the struggles of having to find substitutes and, two, paying for it? And also, not even the cost. Even though I can't have wheat, I don't even eat gluten-free bread or I don't even eat, like, gluten-free waffles or those things have so much 
like, for lack of a better word, they have so much crap in them, and they're not actually that good for you. They're just packed with a bunch of things you actually can have. So, so instead ex- of gluten, it's substituted with other... It's more... It's just processed pro- crap. Yeah. <laughs> and that's and that's the thing. I think the big part of, you know, going gluten-free... And I'm not allergic to gluten, per se. I just have a wheat allergy. And so my allergist told me, just don't have... Just have a gluten-free diet. And that's the easiest way to go about it. But the whole thing I've learned so far is eating whole foods and eating real foods is so much better than the substitute of bread. Having a cheat day is so important in trying to hold on to a diet, especially when you're just new to it. And it doesn't have to be very far apart. You can have a cheat date every week yeah. or if you're getting into this diet more and more, you can have a cheat date every other week or in longer period in a month. But like you said, yeah, I cannot give up ice cream even though I live on a very low sugar diet. Mm-hmm. That's better for my skin. And But still, I'm going to have ice cream once in a while, especially right. on a really crappy day. Like right. I need that part to help me sustain um, it further, you know, in long yeah. term. Mm-hmm. And I was just recently joking with my dad, spring break will be coming up for us in a couple weeks. And when I go home, I said to him, well, first of all, I, I'm from New Jersey. I grew up out there and eating a lot of wonderful pizza and pasta and great bread yeah. and gluten-saturated <laughs> products, um, yeah. hoagie sandwiches, which um, oh. most of the world knows as sub-sandwiches, but... Um, Hokies. And I said to him, I said, I'm going to eat all this stuff when I come home because it's worth it. It'll be, you know, maybe I'll do it at the very beginning of the break and I'll have a couple of days where I pig out on margarita pizza and um, Romano pasta. And then by the end of it, I'll feel better. But for a few days, I'll probably feel terrible and, you know, hate everyone. (laughs) So as we're talking about the cost of all of this here, I I have one statistic that I want to discuss really briefly. It was a... um, is from a study that was a cost comparison of gluten-free and quote-unquote regular foods. It was done by researchers at the Dalhousie Medical School at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. It was a comparison of all food products labeled gluten-free and their gluten-containing counterparts, if you will, in two large grocery chain stores. The results found that the mean unit price for these products that were labeled as gluten-free was $1.71 compared with, for the products that did have gluten in them, a mean price of $0.61. So it's about almost a whole dollar more. So it's about more than, yeah, more than a whole dollar more. That when you look at these foods where it's maybe just pasta that's being made out of rice instead of wheat flour how that factors into things. With our generation, celiac disease and gluten sensitivity being so much more out in the open and also just so many people like dropping gluten, dropping dairy, dropping meat for different reasons, um, health consciousness, concerns for animal welfare. It looks like not only are we just caring more about eating the food and making the food and, you know, having food that looks pretty, but also the this complexity of health-related reasons. And over time, is this going to be a trend where as we continue to mature and then settle down and have families and so on, is this really going to restructure the way that people are going to be buying groceries in this country? The way, like, how people are prioritizing how much money they're spending. 
I hope so. I mean, I think just making that shift, like, again, I said, you know, we were talking about how it's a dollar more, it's on average about a dollar more um, for a gluten-free product, but is that product even good for us? Or if it's, is it even, you know, beneficial to our, you know, nutritional needs? With that being said, with the access for us, especially with millennials and college and college towns, with the access kind of increasing with these health food choices, What's incredible to me is the food desert issue. Talking about food deserts and to bring up another article in The Atlantic, there was a recent study that was done by um, researchers at Georgia Institute of Technology where there was a comparison of Instagram photos. As we were talking earlier about how much we love Mm. to Instagram what we're eating, Mm -hmm. of Instagram photos in areas that are designated as food deserts and those that are non-deserts. These are areas that have similar socioeconomic and demographic um, makeups, but it was a way to really actually get a real look at the foods that people are eating and, you know, getting excited about. In this article, you're actually able to see an excerpt of some of the foods from this comparison. And from the areas where they're non-food deserts, you see fresh-cooked, home-cooked quinoa salad with roasted artichokes, pasta loaded with shrimp and mushrooms and a homemade sauce. And then when you go to the images from food deserts, you see a picture of a big, greasy burger. It looks delicious. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> everything but them. the buns. Yeah. <laughs> two burger picks. And then fried pieces, oh, fried chicken, fried fish. Fried chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, a nice big slice of strawberry shortcake, things of that matter. So, But this is a pretty on-point demonstration mm-hmm. of what Bita just talked about. When you have food desert, they are not so coincidentally places where there are a lot of fast food chains, and mm-hmm. you would go in there to get burgers, and you would go in there to get yeah. already done food. And I think an, a tremendous difference between this set of you know, food Instagram pictures from the food deserts area to the non-food desert areas is homemade and restaurant purchased. Mm Because if you look at the non-food deserts areas, they're pretty much all in, like, containers of home. Like, there's Mm -hmm. a pot of sauce. There's, like, a plate Mm -hmm. of something you made by yourself versus um, food desert areas. They're all, you know... In wrappers. And I just want to throw this question out there. How far, if you didn't have a car, how far would you be willing to travel by public transportation to get your fresh vegetables and food? That's a really good point. That is a great point. Yeah, I I would... Because I didn't have a car for the first two years I was in college. So half an hour one way, I've done that, I felt okay with. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if extending that time I would be more willing to go but definitely half an hour is something one way so like making a round trip would be about an hour and a half for the entire shopping Mm -hmm. and transporting um, process I I would be down with that and I think another thing with that is it's different situations for us it's a college town and a lot of things are a little more accessible but exactly um, we have this organic supermarket that's located 
less than two miles away from where the college campus is, and that mm. is honestly within my own walking distance. Yeah. Like I'd I say would it's walk even like five blocks. It's like five. Yeah, blocks. I mean, we could walk close. out of the studio right now and go get lunch there after. This. Yeah, yeah. So, like it's it's a it's manageable distance, and there are also mm-hmm. smaller stores downtown. Um, mm-hmm. I go to this Korean store very often with a small amount of, but they're fresh groceries for you to purchase, and all of that is they're also available for food bank. Mm-hmm. You know, you can actually go in on a low income which i've um kind of seen people using that means of purchase yeah Mm -hmm. to get their food which it's it's helpful to not have not something that's big not not like walmart right across from your house but something smaller but still very accessible Accessible with fresh veggies and fruits exactly Mm -hmm. yeah and this is a question that would be really interesting to throw out to our listeners i'd like to hear more from you guys from our listeners breaking the fourth wall here on how far you would go to get fresh quality food um, that is what you want to eat and that you know is good for you. And also, you know, any stories that you could give us anecdotally on what you have done to do that. And just in general, like how how you make it work, whether you are someone who has means of transportation and plenty of accessible money and don't have the dietary restrictions that Beta and I now have. Uh, um, How do you do it? How do you make a go of an activity that is so central to not only just living but also our culture and enjoyment yeah Yeah. it's it's every aspect it's It's, from living to actually having a good time with your life and when where do you draw the line of okay i'm just gonna you know compromise my health and just go grab this fast food item so yeah we we would really love to hear from you all on this Uh, so yeah feel free to hit us up on twitter our facebook page uh, email us at threebrokemice at gmail.com because we really want to know how you make a go of things because to some degree or another, the struggle is real. So, Kara, I know you just shared with us some numbers about the cost or the extra cost of purchasing gluten-free or other substitutes for your diet if you have certain allergic symptoms and all of that. Meanwhile, I am also looking at some other data that's calculating how much extra it would actually cost you to purchase organic which is a trend that I'm really promoting for a few years um, now. Um, I am such a big organic buyer, and it started out with, I just prefer the taste, especially if it's vegetables and fruits. Um, I was kind of taught throughout my life by my parents that you smell the groceries before you buy it because Mm. you could tell the quality of the groceries through the smell. If it's non-organic, it would have not any of this fresh, you know, produce smile that you would usually get from, say, a box of strawberries that's organic. Like, so I always just like turn to the back of the strawberry box and smell the strawberries before I purchase strawberries. Like, that's just Mm. something that I do. But this report is put together by Consumer Reports, which is a nonprofit organization that has conducted different reports of the sort that looks at consumer behaviors. This report is a about the cost of organic food. And a trend that I noticed um, through this report 
which is compiled um, through comparing of 100 product pairings in both organic and non-organic. So they would have the same type of food and compile the organic options with the non-organic options ones. Um, and look at a hundred products in total. It is in general, obviously organic will be slightly more expensive than non-organic. A lot of the items that I buy in my own personal diet, like fruits and vegetables, and the examples given here are like apples, bananas, carrots, and some other green items. All of these would have, organic food would have a little extra cost, but usually below 50%. So there would be, for example, apples around 20%, bananas around 11%, but in general, just not as high as, say, products like beef and butter and milk, which are dairy and meat products. Um, in those categories, organic would be a lot higher than just regular food products, quote unquote. And one of the categories that I personally don't find very surprising is the ag category. Um, so the organic ag, according to this report, can be as high as almost 200% more expensive. So two mm -hmm. times more expensive than regular eggs, which I would have to say align with my personal experience going to the supermarkets and purchasing eggs because it's always a struggle that I have. If I go to an organic food store and I see a dozen eggs would cost as much as sometimes more than $3. Mm -hmm. But then if I go to Walmart, sometimes two dozen eggs would cost less than two bucks. Do I sacrifice the quality and go for quantity? Because I need that many eggs in my diet if I don't take in meat. I'm pretty much, mm -hmm. I'm not a vegetarian, but I do eat primarily vegetarian for most of the time. So eggs is like a big part of my diet and I consume a lot of them. So how do I make that kind of decision? Mm -hmm. What do I suffered in order to get the other. I don't know if you pay attention to, you know, egg prices, but that is something that, to my surprise, kind of fluctuates a little and also has a lot of differences in different categories. You have regulars, you have cage-free, you have organic, and all of that come with different price tags. Mm -hmm. And that, for me, has been just like a constant pick and choose whenever I go to the grocery store to see what might be on sale today, what can I get. I'm totally there with you on that. I see the same exact thing. And I, I also find myself having to reconcile with price versus quantity in that sense. And also another variable that is thrown in with are these eggs locally sourced? Are they yeah. from like a large factory farm? And uh, gosh, I, I do sound like such a millennial picky eater here in this regard <laughs> but i do like to if it's not going to cost me a ton of money i do like to support local farms and producers when possible so i think of those factors also but yes as someone else who also doesn't is not vegetarian but doesn't eat a whole lot of meat i am buying a lot of eggs but i'm surprised that the overall average is only 47 percent higher 47, more, exp more expensive. 47% higher. Um, I don't know. I, I would think it'd be higher. I, I, I wouldn't say I'm surprised about it just because I've done so for such a long time. And when you guys shared that you on average spend about $150 to $200 per month on your groceries. And I was like, mm -hmm. I'm not really close to that. I go to grocery store every other week and I spend mm -hmm. about $50 per trip. So I could 
easily cover my grocery for a month in a hundred bucks and that's including like all of the rice and I don't eat bread often but I do get some sometimes um, so including all of that into my diet I could cover that all with a hundred bucks and that's buying organic for me I have just changed that into a lifestyle and it's matter of fact a little more money saving tactic than anything else organic really is not as expensive as people think which is aspect of this that i always try to promote to other people but we do have a missouri business alert reporter um joyce tal this time reporting on a story with us about cage-free eggs Kara, do you want to share with us a little more about that yeah so after some really big restaurant chains such as panera bread and now even the fast food chain hardy's have pledge to use cage-free eggs. It's becoming a trend that is starting to catch on. Hardee's is saying that they're going to go 100% cage-free by 2025. That's pretty wild to think. So, but why are more and more companies jumping in the cage-free line? Why are they deciding that this is so important? As we're talking about here, it seems like people of our generation and even ourselves are more health conscious and there are Americans seem to be more health conscious in general. There's a statistic that eight in 10 American families bought some sort of natural or organic food product that that's a regular thing for them. So is that pushing this? And will people accept higher prices of these products made from cage-free eggs. What are the answers to these questions? Well, Missouri Business Alert's Joyce Tao is going to tell us how cage-free eggs matter both to the chains and to the customers. A Panera staff is yelling out a customer's name for his breakfast order at Panera Bread. You can now order ham, egg, and cheese breakfast sandwiches made from cage-free eggs. In fact, 21% of eggs Panera serve are now cage-free. The number continues to grow. I love Panera. It's one of my favorites. Cameron McMillan is a high school senior. She's curious about cage-free eggs. You may see packed eggs labeled as cage-free or free-range in the supermarket. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Cage-free eggs are produced by hands housed indoor enclosed areas that allows for unlimited access to food and water. Free-range eggs are produced from hands outside and more expensive. Because of the cost difference, cage-free eggs have spread quickly to Hardest and 15 other food corporations such as Starbucks, TJI Fridays, and Wendy's. However, Joe Purcell, professor of MU Agriculture and Applied Economics, says, it still costs more if restaurants switch to cage-free eggs. If you go to cage-free, the laying hen's going to drop that egg wherever she's roosting, and then we're going to have to go hand collect them, and that's going to add costs. Adding cost means pushing up prices, but McMillan thinks this is worth the change. When you come to Panera, you're paying a little bit more than you would in an average place because you are getting products that are better. So that includes maybe the animal's quality of life. Cafe Berlin manager Patrick Connor explained another important difference between caged and cage-free eggs. I can taste the difference just because it has a richer yolk and it's a darker color. Yeah, it tastes better and it's healthier. Uh, there's no hormones in it. Connor says the restaurant pays 30% more for the cage-free eggs. What about when it comes to larger chains? Millennium grad, professor at Missouri State University, says. The national chains are able to purchase larger amounts of food. This means they have negotiation power to get lower prices, but Grant says the cost will still go up. Panera Bread says they serve 120 million eggs system-wide annually. 
This makes the switching process a long-term project. Pursue says this decision might affect consumers' choices in a particular way. Whenever someone has a niche out there in the market, we're able to target our consumer, and those are the consumers that, in the beginning, are willing to pay the highest premium for those products. Premier customers are loyal to the restaurant, but others won't be. Hardest customer Emily Dusing says whether or not she will buy this cage-free axe products. Probably not. We are on a pretty set income. As a teacher, I don't make a whole lot of money, so that would definitely be pretty devastating to us if the prices increased much more than what they already are. Dusing says the size-up price hike is very important to her. She says if it goes up a few dollars, that would make a huge difference. I'm Joyce Tao, KBA News. Columbia. If you're looking for more information on cage-free eggs and more info related to Joyce's reporting, please check out kbia.org and missouribusinessalert.com. So thank you so much again for joining us three broke mice today to talk about this topic that we could go on endlessly about. As you could have probably realized that we all have very personal experiences to share on this topic and. Thank you for listening us like rambling yeah, on and on about personal experiences, and we really enjoyed that. I, I like talking about food as always. Oh,、yeah. definitely, it's <laughs> probably a good thing for you listeners and for time's sake that we didn't bring up something like Nutella or avocado toast. That,、uh, that would have dragged <laughs> things on even further. <laughs> Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be focused on. Health and healthcare, and touching on topics such as millennials and the sort of unfortunate, fortunate, natural predisposition to feel invincible, and what that means for how millennials are approaching their own healthcare, and just some other topics we're going to cover in that show. So. Please follow us on Twitter at Three Broke Mice on Facebook on our Facebook page of the same name. Email us at Three Broke Mice at Gmail dot com. Also, remember to f- listen to us on SoundCloud and subscribe to us on iTunes. So, thank you so much again. We will see you next. Keep、time. on cooking up some tasty food. Yes. All right.